Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lemon Tree Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allison Sukamelli. Each week, I'll be taking the science of positive psychology, adding a little humor, and through evidence-based research, providing you with tools and strategies to help you live a life of peace and purpose. In this episode, I'll be speaking with abolitionist and criminal justice educator, Jason Soule. But first, you may want to check out the Flourishing Co.'s Joy Journal, which will help guide positive and reflective thinking in your everyday life. Shift your outlook for the better, respond to short journal prompts for morning or night, practice gratitude, self-love, and set clear goals to create a meaningful impact on your mental well-being. You can find the Flourishing Co.'s Joy Journal in their shop at theflourishingco.com. And teachers, have you already hit a wall even though it's pretty much the beginning of the school year? We're now staring at the long haul of October without any breaks in sight. If you need a little inspiration or some new ideas when it comes to lesson planning or self-care, check out my shop on TPT called The Lemon Tree by AKS. There are some free lessons and organizers to help keep you on track until that next long-awaited break. You don't have to be a teacher to use the self-care tools, so check it out, see if there's anything that will save you some time or help you maintain your self-care routine. Again, that's TeachersPayTeachers.com, and my shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. Finally, if you'd like some daily inspiration, you can also follow me on Instagram at The Lemon Tree Coaching. I share quotes from books and articles that I am currently reading and make recommendations from time to time. And thank you for your ongoing support and kind comments. You can feel free to reach out at any time. Okay, let's get into this week's episode. Jason Soule is a formerly incarcerated abolitionist. He has been a criminal justice educator for over 14 years and is currently an adjunct professor at Hamline University in the Criminal Justice and Forensic Science Department. He has been a national restorative justice trainer since 2008, leading circles in jails, prisons, and community. Jason is the co-founder of Humanize My Hoodie Movement, in which he challenges threat perceptions about Black people through clothing, art exhibitions, documentary screenings, and workshops. He is also a TEDx speaker. In 2019, he received the John Legend Can't Just Preach Award for his work to abolish prisons. He recently launched the Institute of Aspiring Abolitionists for people who'd like to learn more about abolitionist frameworks. Jason's book, Prison to PhD, explores his life and experiences navigating the criminal justice system. Jason earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Metro State University, a master's degree in criminal justice, and a PhD in criminal justice, both from Capella University. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been 14 years in academia. Grateful to be able to do that, but just grateful to be on this podcast with you. So excited to share and, you know, hopefully, you know, it resonates with the people who are listening. Yeah, absolutely. So to begin, um, maybe describe where you grew up and what your childhood looked like. Uh, I'm from Chicago. So born in 78. Um, War on drugs was my experience. So I was born at a time where the government was cooking up a plan for people that looked like me. And, you know, I, we didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the tools. So a lot of my, you know, my uncle went to prison. He was young. He wasn't even in his teens. He was like 12 when he went to prison. So it's like being snatched and thrown in cages and stuff was um, definitely happening on the South side of Chicago. So that was my context of community growing up, but resilient mom, super amazing, love her to death. She's still grinding in Chicago. Um, And my father, unfortunately, um, struggled with heroin addiction from the age of 16. And, you know, unfortunately, last year at the barium from a heroin overdose. So my life is real. So I'm not disconnected from the subject I teach about. So it just makes me ultra effective when I'm um, talking about any of the things we're doing. But, yeah, it started out pretty rough. I got an older sister and a younger brother. And I mean... You talking about protecting, you know, women. Shit was hard as a kid. You know, if I'm 10, my sister's 13, my mom would be 29. Mm-hmm. It was hard trying to be able to be the person to say, hey, you know, don't say nothing to my sister. Don't say nothing to my mom in an environment where 
everybody trying to figure out what the hell is happening, man. Everybody had asthma in my neighborhood. I lost classmates. Aaron died, what, we was 11? She died of an asthma attack. Just bad air in our neighborhood. So, you know, it was a lot. It was a lot growing up, but I'm grateful um, to be able to keep my mind and be able to, like, keep my integrity through it all. But definitely tough start, but um we we made it out and we we helping other people too so that's the best part of all of that but yeah, yeah. tough tough start yeah. yeah and maybe could you tell us more about what you do as a professor and an abolitionist and how they coincide or kind of go hand in hand yeah so i've always been pretty radical like like i say even in kindergarten like i've always been the type of person where if I don't feel like something right, I'm I'm saying something. Like I'm not gonna suffer in silence. I always had that mentality. Like seven years old, my teachers will tell you, <laughs> you know, like all of them will say, I wasn't going for no shit. I was nice. I like to have fun. Like to laugh. All of that. A kid, but at the same time, I was about justice. Like even at nine and ten years old, if I felt like something was unjust, I always confronted it, even if I was afraid. So. I never thought I'd become a professor because, like in my introduction, I'm formerly incarcerated. Like when I was 18, I got charged with a gun and I was really defending myself from somebody who did something to me. So I didn't understand any of that. And it, it led to just years of me trying to figure it out. So I got a grounded pedagogy in teaching about justice. It don't got to be criminal justice, racial justice, social justice, any of the justices. Justice as a framework, a word by itself, I know what justice should feel like and what is fair because of all of the um, lived experience and the education. But for me, as an academic, I'm really talking about stuff that I know people not even close to touching. Like I was talking about police killings. I came in. I came into this stuff talking about how the system was oppressed, oppressive. Before Philando Castile was killed, nobody was really believing the stories I had about my treatment that I got from police. I mean, urinating on my clothes, trying to embarrass me outside the club in front of 300 people, just reckless stuff. And I just used to be like, man, y'all crazy. Like, y'all, wow. So I got documented evidence of 12 gauge to my face by the police in front of 20 of my friends, 23, actually 23 of my friends. And one of my close friends got arrested and she was a girl and she got arrested because she was standing up for me. Mm-hmm. So the subject I bring to class, I got to have a book, of course, you know what I mean? But um, whether we're looking at the new Jim Crow or Just Mercy or Spark, um, and that's a book I got a chapter in. So I did publish in this one. Um, and it's about it's called Sparked George Floyd, Racism and a Progressive Illusion. That's what I'm teaching with now. And it's written by mostly abolitionists, if not everybody in here, like probably everybody in here is an abolitionist. So I think like every aspect of my life, whether it's humanize my hoodie, whether it's I'm just bringing my gifts to it. I'm not caught up in interpersonal. We're not having a lot of interpersonal conflict around me because we all pretty much know hey, if I got to step back for a week or two and get myself together because I'm frustrated by this project, it's not making sense, we button heads. The way I hold my projects make it easy for me to talk abolition because abolition is about really holding deep relationships, not superficial, not trying to step on somebody to get where you're trying to go. And I treat my students like that. So for 14 years, I've had students where I'm saying, I don't care if you become a cop. I don't care if you become a lawyer. I don't care if you become a correctional officer. I don't care what you become. Be a good human, fam. Treat treat somebody that looks like me like you would treat your mother if you pulled her over. How do you get there? So I'm always ahead of saying we should restore the vote for people who got records. Yeah, I, I got caught with a gun. Yeah, I got caught with drugs. I got no crimes against another person. Does that mean something or does it not? Because I feel like the oppression I get is extreme. Bringing that to students who have to deal with that in real time, who probably ha- never had a black professor, who definitely haven't had a professor that was incarcerated, <laughs> it, it allows them to get a perspective, just a peek into my life, where it's like you could do a ride along with me for 15 weeks and see what it looked like through my lens and my eyes, and um, you'll see the pain and the trauma we've had to experience. Mm-hmm. 
due to um you know due to white supremacy man so when i go to class i don't bite my tongue um I came into teaching 2009, started at Metro State University. That was dope for six years. But when Mike Brown was killed, I took a lot of my stuff to the streets. I didn't want to read and write and do all of that. I wanted to, like, get in with the people and be able to support. That ain't always um, comfortable for departments who got, like, sponsorships and stuff like that. So I left there. Hamlin picked me up right away. And I've been able to say whatever I want to say. I could do whatever research I want to do. I can. And they supporting it. And I needed that because, you know, they could have broke my they, they could have messed up my self-esteem. And I was getting to a point where it's like, oh, no, man, they making it to where it's like they don't think I had no prospects when I leave here or I need them or. And I was lost for a second. I'm like, hey, man, I'm out of here. Screw y'all. But um, we cool now. We we good now. I'm good with that department now, but I had to leave and become successful in another space for them to respect what I do. So I kind of lead by example. And I just like being in places where I could have the partnerships I want to have and just be good to people and not be stressed. If we got to move the deadline, let's do it. If you falling behind and you need support, like I'm like people use the word reasonable a lot. I feel like I'm reasonable. I think my wife well, someday she might not say I'm reasonable, but overall, <laughs> overall, my wife would say I'm a reasonable um, person. So I'm trying to figure it out. I'm on a journey. I can mess up, too, but I'm very intentional with my steps. And that's what I try to get my students to see. And that's what I try and get community members to see. Like, can you take a deep breath before you respond? Is that real for you or do you just go with the high energy? I'm trying to get you to slow down before you respond to that text, before you inflame something. I want you to think and say, how important is it for me to say this to this person? So I do a lot of de-escalation stuff. I started an organization in the Twin Cities. So I don't, I'm not just at a university. That's one place where I um, can do art and science. But for the most part, you know, it's like I'm in Canada or I'm in L.A. or I'm in Oakland. I mean, I travel a lot to be able to, like, really be with the people, even going to jails and prisons. So I think the way I approach any of my teaching or any of my um, abolition work in the community is just through a lens of how do we do better with our relationships and how do we make sure we address and harm? Because mm-hmm. nobody should be able to do something to somebody else and not have a uh, process for this person to be held accountable. Like, I don't, I don't believe in that. So in 2018, I worked in the mayor's office. I'll say this and I'll let you ask another question. Mm-hmm. 2018, I worked in the mayor's office in St. Paul. That's the capital city of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Was making six figures. You know, for me to be formally incarcerated, to make it, I got 12 and a half cents an hour in prison. Like, just sit with that. And they had me in prison for years. And this was not a crime against somebody else. I got caught with something that could fit in your hand. And not to minimize it, of course, it's harmful. Like, I'm definitely not trying to do that. But at the same time, throwing me in a cage for 40 months didn't seem like the solution. So I always had this like, oh, okay, I'm going to do it because it's a lot of us in prison for the same thing. So maybe it is just what people who get caught with drugs do. But when I was in prison and I talked to a white person and I asked them how much time they was doing, they and it was like they harmed somebody, did something to somebody else, and they would have less time than me. And I just never. So my quest for understanding is never going to go away. I'm always trying to learn something else. I'm always trying to collaborate. I'm always trying to, like, be in community and be good to my kids and my wife and my mom and everybody around me too. So I think I'm trying to get people to shift from don't just chase a dream to be a professor or artist or, um, an entertainer or whatever, a carpenter, master carpenter, the master barber. Don't just like go for those things. Just like you got to live in, in, in this life in a way where it's like, can you out love everybody else? Can you show more love to people than anybody else? Because that's what I'm on. And I don't have to compete with you for anything. Like, I want my skills to show up. I want to be able to do something that's important. And uh, I want to have less drama and less trauma as possible. So I'm just trying to shift the energy from trying to reach a goal to, 
you got to love people in this lifetime, man. When you get older and if you get to the end of this thing, I don't think you're going to be thinking about like money. I hope you're not thinking about money. I hope you're <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, the relationships you held and feel good about how you held them, you know? So that's kind of what I bring to whatever I do. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, that's magical. That's amazing. And then just so everyone's clear with all of that said, how do yeah. you define what it means to be an abolitionist? Um, I quote Miriam Kaba. You know, Miriam Kaba in the book We Do This Till We Free Us, she says exactly what I um said earlier. Um as I, I think it's like maybe sure, I'm gonna get all professory on you. Oh, I think it's like page 155. I think it's on page 155. Or 156 of we do this till we free us. But she said, um, as an abolitionist, I care about two things. I care about um, my relationships and how we address harm. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing, because people always think like I'm thinking about the police. It's like I'm not thinking about I have to think about them in a sense of I got to get to my destination and I got to avoid them. Yeah, I think about them from that perspective. But as abolitionists, we build in the world we want to see. So we started an org here called Relationships Evolving Possibilities. It's called REP. And in order to be a part of our group of abolitionists, we saying we want you to come to our org with healthy relationships where your name good in the community, where you might have some unresolved conflict, but it's not like a major thing. So with us having that standard, you know, people will hold us accountable if we do anything, because our rule is we can't allow you to come to the squad and you got like eight fractured relationships out here with people. And it's people mad at you because you did something. We can't take you on. But it's about like 30 or 40 of us now. And, you know, um, people are funding our abolition work. So what we do is. We answer calls on Friday and Saturday night if you're in crisis, mm -hmm. if it's harm, if it's like a domestic dispute. If it's like most calls to police are for loud noise, we taking all of those calls. So it's like for us, we want to get better at how we show up when people call us because they calling us for a lot of things. One woman wanted um, us to be there while she helped her son get in the ambulance. He wasn't physically hurt, but he, his behavior was um, defiant. He might run. He might not get in the ambulance. So she was worried that he was going to. Um, do some grab the stuff in the ambulance or do something, you know, um, and she just wanted us to be there for that. So we got dispatchers, our own dispatch system. We train in people. We got a seven day training. Uh, we do scenarios with you to help you, you know, calm your nervous system and doing some of that somatic abolition work to where you ready when you go out. You got Narcan in your bag. You got bottles of water in your bag. Um some people might not like this, but there are cigarettes in the bag. And um, sometimes when people acting, you know, outside of how they usually act, unfortunately, a cigarette might be the thing that de-escalates them. Like, I didn't agree with that when we first came with it because I'm like, man, I never liked cigarettes. I had never been addicted to them. But I know a lot of people do. But I was, you know, just being just, you know, just stupid about it. But there are people who, if you give them a cigarette in a time of crisis, it makes the world a difference because they, they breathe in. And some people just won't breathe with you. If you say, hey, can I breathe with you for a second? Can we just slow everything down, sit down and just breathe together? It's just. When I do that with folks, it always, you know, um, helps clear the path. So look up rep. You, our, our website is R-E-P-F-O-R-M-N dot o-r-g we pretty dope abolitionists who really change in the landscape of the twin city so we're not in a lot of political conversations or any of that we really being good at what we do so people call us knowing you're not gonna die you're not gonna get physically assaulted it's just gonna be beautiful and we've answered over 100 calls so and i and, and like i say it's an honor to be able to do the partnerships i do been able to partner on the humanize my hoodie side i've been able to partner with people like colin kaepernick like he's one of the dopest abolitionists for him to value my work and like send me a letter and all that kind of stuff. It's like John legend. I'm like, and I got John legend. So I want your people to know this on this podcast. John legend. He became more vocal after he gave me the award. Like 
I never knew John Legend's mom had been incarcerated. He had never said that before he gave me that award. So on some level, I like to believe <laughs> I've impacted him. And then he did an event at a prison in Sing Sing. Had a, had a huge event there. And I was like, you weren't doing all that before you gave me that money. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, shout out to John Legend. I don't know him personally or nothing like that. But it's, it's an honor to know they watching my work. And when I was in prison, I dreamed of doing stuff that'll make my mom proud and that'll uplift the community because I was stuck in selling drugs. I was lost and I just couldn't figure it out. So being an abolitionist means caring about the relationships, making amends. Um, and I, you got to think I got shot when I was younger. Like when I was 20, I got shot up real bad. I was in the hospital. It was a lot of violence. I'm going to be clear. I'm not going to minimize. It was a lot of violence back and forth. It was a tough time because just couldn't understand why these guys would try to kill me. Like it didn't make, it was a lot of things. So psychologically I'm dealing with stuff. I'm on meds. Um, at that time I was like really, um, just heavy in the, in the drug world. And it was a lot of things. The nurses didn't understand me. I'm a tall black guy with braids. I got jewelry on, I got big tattoos and people didn't have a lot of tattoos back then. So police was trying to get in my room. And I was really just a young 20-year-old kid trying to navigate that and deal with this conflict that these guys have brought to me. Not a lot of people understand trying to work through those things. So not only was I in the restorative justice, I'm getting deeper in transformative justice. So that means we don't only have to repair the harm. We could be better than we've ever been. We can We can be better than we thought we could be. And that's how it is with the guys who tried to kill me. Like when we see each other now, all love. I'm not worried about uh, like I, they could be around my kids. I could be around their kids. Ain't no more smoke. We don't hate each other no more. It took about eight or nine years, but I know my subject in an intimate way. Whereas a lot of people theorizing and hypothesizing, it's like you can't talk public safety to me. And you know, I, I've had too many situations where I've had to de-escalate in prison, de-escalate in community, and it's like. That's what I really want people to understand about abolition. Like, we can figure this out for ourselves. It don't have to be a stranger coming with a badge and a gun and all that. That We can do much better. I know we can. So we build in the world we want rather than focusing on saying abolish the police or defund the police. We more so grounded in our pedagogy through a praxis. Mm -hmm. So we thinking, we trying stuff, we might fail at something, but rep is a 10-year project. So we're going from 2020 to 2030. And from there, we don't know what the rest of the story will be, but that's our commitment. And um, we want other people to think about what's your container for your work. That will clear up a lot of, you know, relationship stuff and interpersonal stuff that come up some come come amongst us. So that's what it means to be an abolitionist, like thinking through our own solutions, not depending on the state to solve anything. How do we be each other's medics? How do I support you when you're down? If you depressed, can I bring you some chocolate chip cookies? Because I like to, I'm going to be eating chocolate chip cookies regardless. <laughs> so, so, so if you want some, I don't mind dropping some off to you <laughs> to make you feel better. That's what abolition is. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wish you were my neighbor. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's real like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk more about Humanize My Hoodie movement. You already kind of mentioned a little bit, um, but for those who don't know, could you explain more about that and what inspired this campaign and how did it all come about, essentially? Like I said earlier, I was a professor um, at Metro State, same university. I met my wife. I met her in a corrections class. <laughs> Go figure. A class on prisons is where I met my wife. And, awesome. you know, <laughs> next week we... Um, you know, celebrating, you know, 14 years of marriage. So that's oh, beautiful. Okay. Um, but um, just getting our criminal justice degrees, I never stayed, you know, far from criminal justice. You know, got my master's in and kept studying, kept studying. And um, she's a therapist, so she's at work right now. She works at the hospital doing, she went and got her master's in social work. So nice. she works at the hospital. That's beautiful that she got her career. She don't got to live in my shadow. <laughs> but a lot of her colleagues wear humanize my hoodie and stuff, you know? So it's like, 
But I still want her to have her own identity as I want my children to have their own identity. I don't want them to be Jason's kids or Jason's wife. I don't like that. You know, I like people having their autonomy. Um, but um, I have been teaching for eight years. I left one university and I went over to Hamlin and my first year as a visiting professor. So 2017. I just said, I want to teach with a hoodie on the whole semester. I want to do it for Trayvon. I want to do it um, because I'm a black man. And when I got on the hoodie, people don't know I'm a professor. They don't know what I do, but they definitely don't think professor of criminal justice. That don't even come in their mind. You know what I mean? Whether I'm at the airport or not, like if I got on a hoodie and sweats and Jordans, because that's usually how I rock. People, I don't know, man, they think I'm a thug or something. They got to they got their own narrative about me before they even get to know me or know what I care about. So I just um, had this idea to teach the whole semester with a hoodie on and my family was running out the door, you know, and I was like, wait a second, y'all, I got this idea. Can y'all please just take this picture with me real quick? And I stacked up my books on the table for the semester, the books that I was using. It was Racist America, Just Mercy, Wrongful Convictions, um, New Jim Crow, um, I had some heavy books that semester because I was teaching a three, four course load, three in the fall, four in the, in the um, spring. So and these were tough courses, crime and justice in America, prison, corrections and society. And I might have been teaching inside our prison exchange. No, it wasn't inside, diversity. I had diversity that year, diversity issues and criminal justice. And. Those three courses are meant like those are required courses if you're going to get a degree in criminal justice and forensic science. So I knew with the 97 students I had having this hoodie on every day would impact them. But I still wanted my people in the community to know. So I stacked the books up and I said, hey, y'all, this semester I'm just um, teaching with a hoodie on. And I hope they can hear the material I'm giving and not be um, caught up in what they seeing. But I said, hey, send good vibes. You know what I'm saying? And I hashtagged it, humanize my hoodie. It wasn't something I thought about before. It just like I, it just was pretty natural. I hashtagged it, humanize my hoodie. And it went crazy viral. Like, everybody was hitting me. I had lawyers calling me like, hey, you need to trademark that. Like, you better trademark it now. I was like, damn, y'all ain't said that about no other ideas. Like, <laughs> come on, man. But I trade, like, Andre Wright called me. So... Just a little bit about when I was younger. When I was 15, one of the top ball players in Chicago had a name in basketball, but I was selling drugs and smoking weed and doing a lot, doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing. And um, I went to the camp with like the top ball players in Chicago, and my mom found drugs in my room when I was 15. It was a large, large amount. I had like an eighth of a kilo. It's a lot, especially if you're a child. And um, you know, she sent me to Waterloo, Iowa. And um, the first person I met in Iowa was Andre Wright. You know, he he thought he could play basketball and shit. <laughs> he challenged me. My, I ain't going to cuss. I got to make sure I watch it. But he he challenged me to play basketball on his rim. And I'm like, man, fam, you don't know. Like, I really play ball. Like, I played for Dunbar. That means something to people who know basketball in Chicago. And he wasn't getting it. But we found friendship. So he's a fashion designer. Years later. He's a fashion designer, throws big, he got a like fashion house now in Iowa City, Iowa. So shout out to him. He, you know, dope, dope person. And he hit me up and said, hey man, don't just do it at the university. He like, man, like you don't want to like put it on your body and let the world feel it and stuff. I said, man, I gotta think about that. I'm like, I definitely didn't go to school and stuff to sell no dang on hoodies, man. I'm <laughs> like, that is not the plan. But um, of course, I could rock with him on it. So we got it made. We put it on our bodies. And when we showed it to the world, it went from being the Humanize My Hoodie project to being a movement pretty quickly. And I realized some ideas, you don't even got control over them once you put them out there because it went crazy. He was wearing it. The first day he wore it, he was at New York Fashion Week in New York. First day I wore it, I'm on campus finna teach a, teach a class. And I got three classes this week. And I got to be focused on my content because I know I'm going to be challenged like differently from my white colleagues. So it's a lot riding on. It's like I'm not about to slouch because we got this hoodie and, and people feeling it. But once we um open it up to the world, you know, people people saw the value in it. Even 
the late great Nipsey Hussle, man. He loved it. It's too many people common. It's so many celebrities um, who've worn it. It's so many people who have said something. I was at the J. Cole concert. I'm a big fan of J. Cole. He's like, he's like my favorite rapper, like authentic person, thorough, speaks up when, you know, we need him to speak up. He's amazing. And when I was at the concert at a sold out Target Center, I mean, it wasn't an empty seat in that month. And we was so deep and feeling so good. J. Cole looked up at my hoodie and said, man, I'm loving that hoodie. So the impact is crazy. Like on college campuses, everywhere you see it. You know, I'm I'm like, I'm out here. I go places. And it's like, when I see people with it on, it's just like, hey, you got on human eyes. <laughs> you know, so it's a vibe, man. And I think people feel seen when they got it on where they can actually have a conversation. So one thing, it's definitely created more conversations where people will say, man, I love that hoodie. Or some people will say, humanize my hoodie. Like, what that mean? And I have to say, you with your hoodie on, being a white person or a lighter-skinned person, you don't deal with the stuff I got to deal with. People sizing me up, and I'm just trying to go to the store. So I'm, I got this on so I can be humanized in my lifetime, like not after I pass. I had a conversation with one person. I said, you white. I say, you white, you can you can have a documentary about your life while you still alive. I say, usually black people, we don't get the documentaries until we dead, we dead, we gone. I say, that's why I got to wear this so people can have a conversation easier. And we train white allies, too. You know, I don't do the trainings anymore, but I developed it. I created it and we provide trainings for folks who want to be a good ally to us. And we show them how they can show up. Some of them hang art with us. Some of them challenge people who say stuff about black folks and hoodies, they be in the next door app or whatever that stuff is. <laughs> and um, they stand up on our behalf when we, you know, cause there's some people who will not have a conversation with me about abolition or safety, accountability about policing. They just won't. So I need my allies to have those conversations. So humanize my hoodie is a whole university in and of itself. You know, the, I, I say this all the time. Like the hoodie is really like, it's just like the uniform because the way we teach, he could teach about fashion design. He teach courses. He works with Warner music group, all of that stuff. And it's like, for me, I'm a, I'm a professor, whether I'm in the community, whether I'm no matter where I am I'm doing workshops, training meetups, just went to Canada last week. Um, so it's like, I'm building in a way where I'm creating a different reality for people on a daily basis, dreaming something bigger and trying to figure out the strategy to get to it. So when I came home from prison, I didn't see people with felonies teaching any subject. So that's what it means to be an abolitionist. And that's how I bring it to humanize my hoodie. I'm going to do something that somebody hasn't done with the hopes that it'll make a big difference. That semester, man, students, they had to challenge their biases. I tell you that. And I was on point that semester, too. Man, I didn't miss a beat. My grading was on time. My everything, <laughs> like the lectures were like, I was on point that semester. And I made, and like 2017, I had a lot of students who didn't understand what I was doing. We going on six years. September 9th will be six years humanized my hoodie. They are just blown away at half far. So it's been people who were students at the time who now can say, dag man you took that thing all across the world now we seeing it everywhere and it's like just proud man grateful humbled by it too for yeah, sure yeah it's yep. amazing and correct me if i'm wrong but you raised a hundred thousand dollars in 60 days through that movement for the institute for a yeah. on kickstarter could you tell us more yeah. about the institute and how you achieved such great success <laughs> <laughs> I don't really even know. I'm not a fundraising type of person, really. Right. Like, I go get it. You know, I write I write books. I write, I work hard, you know what I'm saying? Like, as a professor, a trainer, I don't yeah. slack at everything I do. People, like, people will tell you, like, I'm early for everything I do. I'm, I'm ultra prepared. Like, I got my notes. I got the vision. I'm, that's what I do. So, for me, challenging myself to say my base say they rock with me like my base is loyal here you know what i mean <laughs> like they ride for me when i'm not around they uplifting me all the time i'm like i want everybody to have this feeling that i be having like you come to minneapolis with me or st paul or any of this stuff man people show me deep love and i'm like just emotional behind that you know what i'm saying 
So it's like for me to be able to like raise a hundred grand, I knew it was gonna have to put me in a different space because I'm not a fundraising type of person and I never liked asking people for money. Like I'm stubborn against that. Like I used to be in relationships when I was younger and you know, my partner be like, let me give you some money. It's like, nope, my mom didn't raise me like that. Yeah, I'm not gonna depend on nobody else for my for my money. And I got a so it's trauma around me asking for money. And um I told my base, you know, hey, I'm gonna try and launch this Kickstarter campaign. Didn't know much about it, just studied it a little bit. I'm like, wow, you got 60 days and it's an all or nothing campaign. Mm-hmm. If you don't reach that goal, and I'm a risk taker, you know what I mean? Like, I like I'm gonna see if we can do this. And I was doing it at the worst time because it was close to election time. So I started that campaign September 21st and we had to go to November 20th. It was smack in the middle of real races that were happening. And I'm here in the Twin Cities. So these are big races that were happening about policing, about. But um, I knew I knew I knew the vibes of the twin cities and I knew what people were saying nationally about me and I knew what I was holding. And I just said, let me organize this well enough to where I release the hoodie at this point. I release the t-shirt at this point. I release what we're going to do with this. Well, I'm going to have a couple events putting those events on there made a difference because people knew they was going to see me in person. And a lot of people was like, yeah, I'll pay to come out. You know, because they know the music going to be good. I always got the food right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, they knew, you know, like, the level of event, you know, I'm a bring. So I just organized it pretty good. But, I mean, there are things you don't know will happen when you do stuff like that. And um, my homie Victoria, comrade of mine, she said, Jason, I'm going to make some earrings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shrink the books you like into earrings. When she did that, she raised money from I said, dang, man, like that's super tight. You're gonna make them earring. People loved it. It was like one of my buddies did a um made a shirt. Um, and it, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he made a song about San Quentin being just a place like it was hell. And uh this was a big singer. I hate I'm drawing a blank. She's gonna be mad but at me. Did, uh, Johnny Cash? Johnny Cash, absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, she's gonna be mad at me. <laughs> I like she was so thank you because I was drawing a blank on 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 his name, but um she mm-hmm. put his picture on there and it says San Quentin, you did no good. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's tight. So you can't plan for stuff like that. And the relationships I built where people said, you know what, I'm gonna make my base um raise five thousand for you. Like I see you because I was stuck at like when we got to like sixty thousand. It was, it was, nothing was working. I was writing articles, publishing articles. I'm making videos. I'm doing all of the stuff. And it was like, it wasn't moving. And when one of my accomplices said, no, nah, I'm going to give you 5000 and I'm going to ask my base to raise 5000 it shifted everything quickly. So that Kickstarter campaign launched the Institute of Aspiring Abolitionists, which gave me $100,000 to teach about abolition throughout the region. So I got a base now in Eau Claire. I got a base now in Milwaukee. I got a base Fargo, North Dakota. I got a base in Chicago. So I took that time to really go throughout this region and bring people along on the journey. So it was like a lot of retreats. It was a lot of support. People who just came home, a lot of survivors wanted to know, how do I get justice for this person who I really do love, but they did this super bad thing to me. So the 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 groundwork I laid then, has only led us to a place now we're actually raising money for a physical space, but I've kept it pretty underground because I know if I know I can raise a hundred grand in 60 days, I know I can raise 250 grand, but I want to keep it on a, I want to keep it to a word of mouth thing. Just so it's just more, more of a grind to it. You know what I mean? Cause if I put it online, I'm grateful that people will support me right away and throw money towards it and make it a thing. But I want to know who really going to be with me for the next 40, 50 years of my journey. You know what I mean? If I get that, you know, I want to build like that. So when I have the Institute, that's going to be the place I teach at. So I'll be in my spot and I'll let folks come in there and um, it's a, it'll be a co-working space where you won't have to pay. It'll, the vibes will be good. The energy will be good. If you coming in town, it'll be a place for you to stay in there. So um, just really building the abolition house is important to me so I can bring my teaching 
not only at an academic level, I can actually show people my publishing style. How do I write? What is my, it'll just be a place for me to pour into the community in the right way. So we've grown. The Institute has taken way higher level. Our 10 point plan that we started with at the beginning of the year, we are doing it, man, we are doing it big, man. So I'm just grateful, super grateful. So to answer your question, it's thriving. The Institute is an amazing. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you, if we switch to kind of maybe more personal sort Whatever. of questions, Whatever. it all kind of goes yep. together. Um, sure. I'm just curious, you have a lot going on. So I'm just curious yep. when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what what do you do? Um I don't ever really feel that. Um I'm pretty, I'm pretty um organized as a person, you know, like even here, like I'm going through things, you know, looking at these envelopes and, you know, I'm pretty organized to where. And I think um, the the academic schedule kind of grounds me in a way I was sharing this yesterday, mm-hmm. knowing the fall looks like this 15 weeks. I got this many students. OK, I got that. I build all my other stuff around that 15 week kind of clock. Mm-hmm. So when I'm holding a project. I don't only look at the start and where we want to end up incrementally. I look at where I want to land. I look at my milestones for each thing. And it's just like, when I do that, I see myself burst out and get through the first four steps. And I'm like, Oh, I could do more. I could do better. I could do. So <laughs> I set realistic goals. I don't go. And a lot of people thought going for that hundred grand in 60 days was an unrealistic goal. It was a lot of people around me like, dad, you on the radio. You are. <laughs> I was really in fundraising mode and I'm not even like that as a person. So it was like, wow, challenging myself like that. But I'm willing to take a loss too. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to, if I don't succeed, I'm not going to be down about it. It's just going to be like, dad, we could have did a little bit better in this, but I'm I'm fine with that. So I think that's what, keeps my clarity that's why i'm not scattered or unfocused or was i supposed to do that or that mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't usually be like that like i say if you know anybody who know me personally they'll say usually i got it organized to where it's like i'm prioritizing family first and as long as i'm winning with my family immediate family and my entire family if i'm winning with the with my family mm-hmm. all of this other stuff is like just icing so i think I'm so locked into like family first, then from there, how well can I hold the community that I don't, I don't ever really <laughs> lose the focus. I, nah, nah, nah. Too, too many people depending on me to have the focus. Humanize my hoodie, like Institute, rep. I got to be pretty focused. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to slouch at anything I'm doing. That wouldn't be fair to the people I'm co-struggling with. I, I want to bring my best. If I commit to it, I want to see it through. So I think, the intentionality is what helps me stay focused. When I wake up, it's like my family wanted a dog against <laughs> against my wishes because I knew I was going to have to take care of this thing. <laughs> Every morning I walk this dog between 5, 30, and 6 o'clock. And this is a beagle. This dog can walk super far. Like, I mean, if you, I mean, this dog can go. Long life expectancy, all of that. <laughs> for me to, for me to, have that in me i gotta know in the morning gotta go to the dog then my baby's good you got everything for school i drop both of my kids off all the time now my oldest is driving starting college in the fall 16 year old hey on point at work right now on point so for me i know where my focus needs to be and i know when i gotta make sure i'm making my meetings or taking my notes or being prepared for this other thing and like I say, when I look at my calendar, I'm very intentional on putting rest on the calendar. Mm-hmm. I don't do it, but shit, I put it on the calendar just as a <laughs> reminder. But, but I do. I got a lot of days in the fall where I got rest on there, rest on there. But we'll see how that go. But <laughs> That's awesome. And what kind of dog is it? I'm just curious. <laughs> it's Eagle Lab Mix. Oh, so, awesome. Um, cute dog. Cute. <laughs> I mean, all of that but i'm like i got a dog at 40 like, i think i was 40 years old. i said i never i never was an animal person but for the family um they want the dog and it was like i had to shift some priorities and i knew i would be giving up some things but we gained a lot and just seeing them happy with the dog is mm-hmm. is worth it. so so yeah but it wasn't you know i was focused on 
meeting these markers and stuff. That was like, not nah, don't want to do it, but that's life, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And with that said, are there maybe one to three people that you've learned from or followed closely in the last year or so? Um, I never thought I had a chance to really work with um Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie. Those are some brilliant minds. And um they reached out and we did some amazing work together. And I was just like, you know, sometimes I just feel like I don't deserve these opportunities because, you know, I lost a lot of friends. You know what I mean? Like I carried a lot of caskets when I was younger. I lived in, you know, just an economically deprived neighborhood where, um, you know, people weren't bad people, but the conditions were you got to survive. I can't think about your happiness because I'm miserable. You know what I mean? And I even show people pictures of me when I was younger and people say, man, you look young. You look older <laughs> when you was when you was 19 and 20. And I was like, man, that stuff was hard living, man. It was like the expectations, the um, looking out for my sister. My sister's apartment got broken into twice. And I had to be there. You know what I mean? That's not something I'm just going to let my sister go through on her own. And I was always trying to be good to my siblings and to everybody. I just took the wrong pathway. So I think, um, what was your question? Wait, I I forgot the question. Maybe one to three people that you've learned from or followed. Yeah. So so I'm always learning from, from family. So, even if I don't agree with something, even if I don't agree with their approach, I'm always learning from anybody like my mama. You know, she depend on me for a lot of knowledge, but I still lean on her like just even if nothing comes from it. So um, but if I had to name one to three people that you would know of, I would definitely say um Miriam Kaba is one super brilliant man. Like it's impressive how, you know, how much the volume she put out. I'll say Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote the 1619 Project. Um, shout out to her. She went to Waterloo, Iowa. Um, well, she went to Waterloo West. I graduated from Waterloo East. Um, even took one of her friends to prom, which is wild. <laughs> but um, still in good com- community, still good relationship with them, too. But, um, yeah, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, my uncle, he not known to the world yet but in a couple years you'll hear about my great uncle dr jonathan walton jr um he died he died in 1988 of hiv aids and um i don't know his legacy just didn't go further he taught at the university of iowa for 10 years he got his phd from princeton university um he got an award in 1974 with dr cornell west oh wow but don't nobody know him. So I'm doing all the digging. I got his dissertation and, wow. you know, his research was on, he, um, he studied how black folks lived when they made it to Canada through the underground railroad. Wow. And his research inspired a bunch of Canadians to do similar research. So it's like, he cited like 30 times on the Canada side. Mm-hmm. So I'm just diving into his work, talking to his old friends, talking to his former students. And um, he died at 43 years old. And I'm 45 now. And I'm like, man, he had a lot of years ahead of him. And he was going to do some impressive stuff. And I got to hold it down for him. So I stay in that sacred place. So I say my uncle, Dr. Jonathan Walden, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and Miriam Cabo. Mm-hmm. And is your uncle's uh, life going to be another book that you're going to write, maybe? If you want well, to. he, from what Melba and a few other historians and dope professors, because mm-hmm. he inspired a lot of people, man. I mean, it's people internationally who, when I bring up his name and ask if they knew him, they like, you don't know how amazing that guy was. You don't, everybody does this. All his students, anybody I run into. So it's like, what I'm hearing from people who knew him, they saying he would want his dissertation turned into a book. When he died, that was like the main thing. And there's controversy around it because the University of Iowa said they brought the book to my family mm-hmm. and they told my family, hey, it's not finished. He didn't finish it, but you can have it. And allegedly my family said, if it's not finished, we don't want it. I could see one of my, I could see my, 
I know exactly which auntie probably said that. Like I know, like I know my family. But um, I don't know. I think it was some shame and some guilt around him having AIDS and him being queer. He was a gay man. Um, I think people kind of just forgot about him and just like, but I'm giving him life now. So yeah. I don't know. So we gonna make. I'm gonna make his book. And I haven't really shared this to everyone, but I'm going to make his book happen for him. And I might yeah. write the foreword. And I just got to think about where the proceeds go. It, the, pro, the, the money going to go to something that he really, truly cared about. And he went to Canada in 1981. And that's why I got the connection to Canada, because it's really for him. They loved him there. And he's not dead over there. Mm-hmm. He's still well alive in Canada. And I'm like, building relationships around him through that. So yeah, that book going to come out, but it's going to be all kudos to him. I might do the foreword or I might have my mom. I might do the foreword with my mom. Cause she was 29 and he was 43. She had more of a, re- I was 10. I didn't know. I was just at the funeral. You know what I mean? I saw him before he died, but right. I might say some of that because so I'm going to figure that part out, but yeah, it will be a book. It might be a documentary, but I'm going to lift the- the right way for sure yeah his story needs to be told i agree absolutely yeah and then i know that you already talked about books that you teach in your class as part of your curriculum but are there any other books that maybe have greatly influenced your life that you would recommend other people to read um what book yeah 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 i love books um i don't know man I think because um, I don't have time to read right now because I'm writing and I don't want nobody's um brilliance to <laughs> influence what I'm doing. So let me I, let me think. Um, Derricka Purnell's book, um, Becoming Abolitionist, that's that's fire. That's a dope book. Um, End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Um, and that's one thing that I didn't expect when I did that Kickstarter campaign. I never expected him to contribute to the campaign and then offered to do an event with me for free in New York. And we did that. We, we really did that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and we hung out later and he was just giving me so much game. And a couple months later in the police and became a bestseller. And who would think a book with that kind of title? <laughs> like, 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 so it's a lot of books around me. Um, I'll say Liberated to the Bone by Susan Raffo, one of my comrades, another core member of Rep, my org here. Her book is dope. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's 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 probably it for right now. Um, yeah, I'll stop there for now. Because, like, like, if I get in book mode, like, I can't be in writing mode. Like, I'm going to think about the stuff they said. Yeah, a whole other episode. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. tell me book titles. Tell me book titles. For sure, for sure. Yeah, but those are some prison by another name. Uh Maya Shenwa and Victoria Law. I'll throw that out there and um yeah, that's it. All right. Stop. And just a few more questions if you still have yeah. time. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, so I'm just curious, what advice would you give to a smart driven college student or even a high school student? as they're about to enter the real world? Um, you know, know who you are. You know, know your deal breakers. Um, don't feel like you got to do something you don't want to do. Don't compromise your integrity. Um, if, it, if it comes time for you to have to pivot from something you dreamed of doing, like the job don't work out or internship don't work out or whatever, Try to dust it off as fast as you can so you can get back in the game. Don't, I mean, grieve it how you got to grieve it. I'm not taking your grieving process away, but if you can shorten your grieving process so you can really get into your best work, I think the energy from the pain and the um determination and, the you know, all that can produce something great. So, you know, I would just say go into, you know, your work with an open mind, but don't let nobody try and make you like them or don't don't let nobody like belittle you or treat you like you don't belong you more than worthy you got the degree go out there and be amazing it's the best advice i can give and and 
and one thing I would say is block out the noise. It's a lot of noise out here and I'm good at cutting off the noise. You know what I mean? So that's my advice, man. Don't get caught up in all the hoopla and don't shift with every hot topic and don't, you know, lose your motivation for all the entertainment and stuff that's out here. Like lock in, find your days where you just blocking out on the thing you're really good at. So that's what, that's what I would say. But I, I, I always got a lot to share with, um, anybody who's trying to pivot because I've had to pivot so much in life where I don't look at it as a challenge anymore. I look at it as this is my time to really shift into something greater. Like I had a, I had a flash drive that I felt like was my most important flash drive. You know how that is where it's like, man, I got gems on this thing. This is important. My, all my classes are on here. Everything is on here. My PowerPoints out. And I did a I did a um presentation with an organization and it wasn't working. My like my flash drive wasn't working. I said, you know what, forget the slides. I can go without them. Don't even worry about it. Like people are here, they waiting. I don't want to waste any more time on trying to get the slides working. So I started talking, and the guy, he was a higher up. He wanna, he wanna keep trying to work on. It. I said, please, if you can, don't, don't mess with it anymore. It's okay. When I took my flash drive home. It was corrupted. It wouldn't even, it, it had nothing on it. And when I took it to Best Buy, they said, there's nothing on this. I said, you lying to me. You lie, <laughs> You are lying to me. I know everything that's on that thing. It's gone. I could have grieved it. I could have like told the guy, man, you know, you know what you did, man. You messed up my stuff. I could have did a lot of that. I just said, man, you know what? All that stuff I did, that was the old stuff anyway. Let me go ahead and tighten up these syllabus. Let me just work a little harder, make all the stuff I had on there better. I dust my shoulders off pretty quickly. Allison, and I get I get back in it. I'm not wallowing in any of it. You know, it's like I might feel it. It hurt for a second. But the the faster you could dust your shoulders off, the better. Excellent advice. Okay. And then I always like to end on a silly kind of fun question. So take sure. Take this as you will. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Maybe something that other people just don't quite get, but you just absolutely love it. It can be anything. <laughs> well, I don't really have nothing like that. Let me see. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Like, so I don't play video games a lot. I did as a kid. But I do play NBA 2K, 2K23. Like, that's one where it's like, strategically, I'll be having to win and get to the next level. And people don't really know that about me because, like I said, I'm not a game head. I don't talk about playing yeah. video games. And I don't play a lot of them. If I'm playing with my daughter, uh, my younger daughter, I'll play a video game. We might go to GameWorks or something like that. I do that with them. But for the most part, people don't know, like, 2K23, I'm pretty dope at that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like. That's like the game that I do, you know, really rock with. I don't know if it's absurd, but, you know, that's one of the things that I that I do. And I don't play anything else. So got my one specific game. You can have everything else. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I love it. That's great. That's great. Okay. Yep. And is there anything else about your work that you'd like to share with us or anything that we haven't already covered? Where can people find you, contact you? Yeah, I would say I don't, I don't share a lot. You know, I'm not really on social media really at all. I don't have an Instagram. Um, LinkedIn, I would say, is where I'm most active. But um, I would say sign up to be a Patreon. My Patreon account, um, easy to find me on there. You can just put in Jason Soul or Institute of Aspiring Abolitionists. But other than that, um, my website, jasonsoul.com. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. But I just say... Um, Life is short. You know what I mean? Like tragedies will happen. Um, there'll become a time there. There will be a time where we won't be able to have space like this and listen to each other and vibe and just move with that kind of space. Like don't make life harder for somebody else. You know what I mean? Try to figure out how to work through the nuances, the complexities. And, you know, it's like we're here to love each other. We we not here to do all of the stuff that we do against each other. We We just not. So just want people to know that, man, we're here to love. We're not here to do all of these other competitive things. And I got to get this amount of money and uh, we're here to love. So that's what I'll close with.
All right. Well, thank you, Jason, so much for taking the time to be here today. I truly, truly appreciate it. Gratitude to you. Thanks for having me. Good luck with everything, fam. Okay, so there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my wide-ranging conversation with academic and abolitionist Jason Soule. Again, you can find him on LinkedIn or at jasonsoul.com. And that's J-A-S-O-N-S-O-L-E.com. And of course, you can find books and other links in the show notes at thelemontreecoaching.com under the podcast and resources tab. And kind reminder to check out the Flourishing Co.'s Joy Journal in their shop at theflourishingco.com, as well as my TPT shop called The Lemon Tree by AKS for some other free lesson plans, organizers, and self-care tips at teacherspayteachers.com. Again, my shop name is The Lemon Tree by AKS. And you can find a link to all this good stuff on the podcast and resources page at thelemontreecoaching.com. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions. Okay, as usual, it's been a pleasure sharing this space with you, and I will see you next week with more evidence-based research, tools, and strategies grounded in positive psychology. I'm Dr. Allison Sukamelli. Have a great week.